Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is very fun. It is a launch party episode, a release party for the website, soyourdeconstructing.com, Y-O-U-R-E, no apostrophe. Uh, my friend, Sari Martin Concepcion, and I put this website together starting uh, this past summer, and it's out in the world, and it's live. And to celebrate, we took part in two launch party episodes. The first one is here today that you're listening to now on the You Have Permission feed, and the other is also coming out today on the Homebrewed Christianity podcast feed. I will have a link to Homebrewed, uh, to their regular feed, and it will be the top episode. And then later on, when I can get a link to the actual episode, I'll swap out uh, that link in the show notes. So you should be able to click on that and easily find the episode on that thread. That one was sillier. On the Homebrewed episode, we played a 
a fantasy draft kind of a game. We played it where uh, instead of position players, as in a fantasy football draft, we had categories of evangelical upbringing, or I guess kind of, it was it was very silly. Uh, for instance, sexual Bible verse, um, youth group uh, icebreaker or ritual we had. And then there was some more serious stuff like theological idea you were stoked to learn existed that you didn't know before. So kind of around, you know, the, the theme of deconstructing one's uh, given Christianity and then finding some different approaches, which is, of course, what this show is so often about. Anyway, today's episode here was a bit more serious. I sat down with uh, good friends of mine, uh, all of which have been on the show, although I think Sari has maybe only been on a patron-only episode. Um, but joining Sari were Sarah Lane Ritchie, Myron Penner, and Trip Fuller, the host of Homebrewed uh, Christianity. And we did, we went around and talked about our own stories, uh, our faith change stories, our own kind of deconstruction, reconstruction, um, kind of based around some of the themes that are on the site. And so we each picked an item that had been important to us in, in our own narrative. And we told some of that narrative and asked each other questions and it ended up really interesting. Um, get a, a whole bunch of different voices in here. Uh, there definitely are some laughs as well, although it is not quite as silly as you might imagine as the homebrewed episode during which uh, many cocktails were consumed. So uh, check them both out if you want, or just one, whichever one sounds better to you. Uh, again, the website is SoYou'reDeconstructing.com, and it is really a resource page for people who are ideally beginning a, a sort of a faith change in their life. There are resources for therapy, about trauma, uh, testimonies of people who have gone through this before. There is a page for communities, both in person and digital. Obviously, in person stuff is not really meeting right now. Um, and then there is a whole topics page, which has something like 15 topics, each of which have something like 15 to 25 resources. These are books, podcast episodes, blog posts or essays, uh, YouTube videos or series, stuff like that. Um, took a while to put together. We don't make any money from it. In fact, it costs us money. It is the kind of thing that we just wanted to put into the world. It started out, uh, as we will say in this episode, uh, it started out as a joke. And then it became a real thing, and we're really proud of it. So, okay, that having been said, let's get into this episode with Myron, Sari, Sarah, and Trip launching SoYou'reDeconstructing.com into the world. Everybody, welcome to a potentially but hopefully not chaotic uh, episode of You Have Permission. I am joined here today by four good friends of mine. We have a little a little friend crew that came out of a Fuller Seminary theology psychology seminar last summer. We call ourselves the Theopsych Liberals. I don't know if that's okay to say that publicly, but who cares? Uh, Sari, Sari just who's got here fired. with us today. Sari just got fired from the job she left earlier yeah. this year. Um, <laughs> they want to hire her back so they can fire her. Exactly. So she, Sari Martin Concepcion, who's one of our five guests here today, she kind of organized that whole thing and specifically brought, at least I know, Trip and I into that 
crew. I don't know, Sarah, if you brought everybody in, but you at least brought us and became the sort of the the hub of the friendship spokes of this crew. And now we like Zoom with each other about once a month and we text each other and we hang out when we're in person. It's become, a, for me, a very important and life-giving friend group. And we've got all five of us here today to celebrate the launching of Sari and I's co-project, SoYou'reDeconstructing.com, which I'm going to have her talk about in a second. But first, let me just introduce everybody. So Sari Martin Concepcion already mentioned her. She works for Blueprint 1531, 1541. 1543. 1543. <laughs> Shit. Uh, which there are is, numbers involved. Just, just give, me a, give me a sentence on that because you'll do it better than me. We consult on grant projects, mostly having to do with the intersection of religion and the sciences. Great. That, that is better than I could have done it. And mm-hmm. then next, we've got Sarah Lane Ritchie, theologian of religion and science. Coming to us uh, from, is it, it's Edinburgh. What's the name of your guys' school that you teach at? University new of. College. University new of Edinburgh. College. Okay, to be that, fair. This is, it the is new college, college thing is what throws me off. Yes. Yeah. New college is the name of the school of divinity. Okay. So, you know how like in Oxford, they'll have different colleges. Like, yeah, yeah. it's like that. Of course, so, I know so all college. about the colleges of Oxford. It's no yes, big deal. Of course, as one does. University um, of Edinburgh. New college, new college. school of divinity. Yes. University of Edinburgh. And Trip Fuller also currently doing a what is it like a fellowship there? That could, that's good what enough. Thing? I mostly uh, I just wanted of... to hang out with Sarah, and then she got pregnant. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and then there was a lockdown. So mostly I just hang out in the house. You notice how Dan, poorly. how Dan starts by saying how great friends we all are, and then he totally butchers what everyone's doing. He doesn't know anything about us. <laughs> no, Myron, he knows just, that we yeah. like him. And that is what right. really holds oh, this group yeah. together. <laughs> is, we're just like us. We're just a safe space. That's all we are. <laughs> you guys are my favorite mirror to look at myself in. Uh, that's how I know I'm a true narcissist. But Trip, you're also the host of the Homebrewed Christianity Podcast and a theologian yourself. And then Myron Penner is here. So everybody here, uh, I don't know if Siri, you've been on maybe only a patron episode, but everybody's been on an episode before. So you might recognize all four of them. Myron A. Penner, philosopher from British Columbia at, at Trinity. What is the <laughs> Trinity Northwest? <laughs> what is the name of the school? You know, like all of, I all of Dan. Don't tell him. Don't stuff. tell him. Let, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Trinity, Myron, Western, Trinity, Trinity, Trinity Western. Western. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, guys, <laughs> this might be a, a sign of a, a very bad episode. I, I'm just <laughs> at least blame on my it on end. Your child say that you didn't get much sleep. Yeah, he's the going thing is, Jeffrey was, Jeffrey was really helpful because because I had so much podcasting to do today, and I did get – I got eight oh. hours of sleep. So well, I can't blame it on that. It's really just me apparently being in cognitive decline. Well, ev- as so, everyone knows anyway, Dan, former guitar player from Sum 41. Former guitar player of – what was that emo pop band that Sum 41. You were in Sum 41. That's what I remember. Was it the Spill Canvas? Um, okay, so – Sari, please explain to us, because apparently I can't describe anything today, what the website is that you and I made together. Yes, it's soyourdeconstructing.com. 
and I, Sari, helped you, Dan, put this together. We wanted to just sort of curate a collection of things that might be good resources for people who are kind of the beginning stages of deconstruction. If you don't like that word, I just like to say that we don't love it either. We're not all about the, you know, the deconstructing. We just kind of wanted to help people feel less alone in that process because at the beginning it can be a little rough and also just kind of put everything in one place. There's a lot of stuff in a lot of places. And so mostly we're just a, you know, a finger pointing to <laughs> pointing to the good stuff. So I need there's to work a, on my talking points. But <laughs> there's a page the on <laughs> therapy. There's a page yeah. on prayer and spiritual practices. There's a page on finding communities, both digital and eventually brick and mortar when we're allowed to do that. And then kind of the meat of the site is this topics page, which has, I think it's up to 15 or so of these separate topics that each have something like 10 to 20 um, podcast interviews, essays, book links, sometimes lecture series or YouTube videos all around these various topics. And that's the launch pad for what we're doing today. I asked everybody to look at that topic list, look at that page and come up with a couple items we're calling them concepts or topics that for each of us played an important role in a pivoting or a growth period of our own faith. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to go around and each of us is going to get through at least one of these. And we're going to put a little narrative meat on the bone. Where does this fit into our own story? And what is the story of our coming upon this idea? And then we'll have a little roundtable chat about each person's, at least their number one concept or topic. And then if we have time, we'll get to, we'll go to number two, et cetera. Myron has to leave a little earlier than the rest of us. So we're going to start with Myron. Does anybody have any questions in this group uh, before we kick it off and get into the meat here? I, I think it might be cool to say that I'm not cool, but maybe just give us a good, well, everyone will give their own starting place, but you know, Dan, you and I, Sari, both come from an evangelical background, and I think Sarah, too, comes from an evangelical right. background. And Myron is an adult convert to Christianity, and Tripp was raised Christian, but not necessarily evangelical, exactly. So I think it'll be cool to see how these different yeah. themes and topics sort of interact with some of the diversity yeah. of, our, of our backgrounds. I think that is worth saying. Yeah, I love that. So, Myron, let's start with you. What What is your number one sort of concept or topic that interacts with your story in a way that you wanted to share with us. Yeah, let me just say too that by way of kicking off that uh, I'm just so grateful that you guys have put this website together and that you're collating and, and curating these resources for people. You know, I teach philosophy at a private Christian liberal arts and science university and, you know, you have a front row seat to a lot of the students' progress through their own faith journey uh, from 18 to 22. And, you know, a lot of them uh, are going through a certain kind of deconstructing kind of process. And just to be able to point them to a resource like that is just, is just great. But I have conversations with people all across lifespan who, you know, the deposit that they've been given uh, from, you know, their evangelical kind of upbringing or the church that they're in, is just not doing it for them anymore. And uh, it's just uh, going to be great to be able to point them to that, to that site. 
In terms of my own story, yeah, Siri mentioned, I'm a little bit of an outlier here maybe in that I don't have a, a, a real pivotal kind of deconstruction kind of moment or, or like an aha moment where I thought, oh, I used to think this and now I think that and it kind of blows everything away. But I think for me, as, as I've kind of just reflected on, on my own journey, probably the, the closest moment like that was when I, I kind of realized that it was okay to, to give up kind of the assumption of a classical kind of theistic picture as, as a starting point. You know, and and that just kind of opened up all sorts of interesting and creative and, and life giving ways for me to think about faith, to think about Christian theology, to think about it put me in a, a place of understanding different kind of theological frameworks and to be able to uh, receive from them tools to kind of navigate my own faith. And it just opened up all sorts of, of interesting vistas for me. And well, Myron, was, before uh, you before you yeah, yeah. Um, narrativize it, can you? Uh, <laughs> Give us a, a short refresher on the basic claims of classical theism about what is what is, what kind of God is the God of classical theism? <laughs> right. So <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel like others on the screen would be better able to do if that. If anybody but, else would prefer to jump in, feel free. Uh, we can Myron's going to give the best pitch for classical theism you've ever heard. It's going to be like <laughs> nonviolent and warm and Canadian. <laughs> so. So when I th- when I think about classic uh, classical kind of theism, uh, it's you know kind of rooted in you know the creeds and church councils and kind of the the view of God as you know the omni God you know uh, all knowing all powerful perfectly good and kind of the the way in which uh, Greek philosophy was used to kind of make more precise kind of the the tradition of early Christianity. And then kind of this idea that to be Christian is to uh, affirm a very particular interpretation of those early, early Christian kind of doctrines. And that there's kind of a, a very, you know, clear and tight kind of starting point that defines what it means to be Christian in all times and places and interpret it in a very particular kind of way. And, you know, I, I think... Uh, a lot of theologians and uh, philosophers who are are Christians, you know, see their work as, you know, defending that particular interpretation and that to do, you know, good philosophy of religion is or good philosophical theology is to show that arguments against that particular box don't hold merit. Not to take a complete shit on that project, but it could be that there are bad arguments against classical theism. And so then we ought to, you know, understand that and explore that and, and, and move away from that. However, I, I think, you know, if one is able to kind of take a step back and just allow uh, one to inhabit a different space where you don't have to start in that box, uh, it just opens up lots of interesting cre- and creative theological possibilities. 100%. Um, before you put this into your own sort of personal narrative, I just want to say that I just experienced this and, and the five of us, we messaged about this, but I was just on this guy, Tom Jumps. Uh, YouTube channel. He's an atheist who mostly debates with theists, but occasionally has sort of more respectful conversations like we had with more liberal theists. But he really, I looking back on it, it's clearer to me now than it was, of course, in the moment, not knowing a ton about him. But he basically assumed classical theism. We were debating classical theism. We weren't actually debating theism. And right. most of his guests are apologists. <laughs> and then occasionally he'll have someone like Pete Enns on, who I think is – I don't know what his technical theology is of God, but I would assume he's a lot less tied to classical theism than mm-hmm. you know someone 
like a, a you know an apologist would be. Um, but it was really interesting because I was I just had to keep saying things like, yeah, okay, so your that argument is about classical theism, which I I reject. So yes, I would probably agree with you in that, except I don't think that that's what God's like. Mm-hmm. And so you know, it was kind of interesting to just get that flushed out for me. Could you imagine yeah, having that's... classical theist on all the time? Like that sounds like <laughs> the worst ever. Like I, it just if you were like trip. For purgatory, you're going to spend 100 years <laughs> interviewing classical theists. I'd be like, send my ass to hell. Like, I don't even. <laughs> <laughs> so, Myron, you, you didn't have the kind of, you know, raised conservative, deconstruct some of that, find something more liberal that fit your intuitions better story. I'm interested in where this comes in your story. So you come to Christianity as an adult. And do you come to it? with this kind of classical theism baked into the cake, so to speak? Well, yeah, I think, you know, my first kind of experience of Christian community and, you know, fairly soon after going to Bible college and then to seminary at Regent College, you know, there there's a strong kind of ethos of kind of a mainstream evangelical, you know, educational environment. And, you know, then coming to realize like when I was starting to read theology, it was just, it was just, you know, assumed to be kind of a classical theist, theistic kind of picture, uh, especially, especially at Regent College, you know, and there the, in uh, the language was, you know, doing biblical theology, which was kind of exegeting biblical texts from, you know, people like Bruce Walkey and Gordon Fee, but then also systematic theology, J.I. Packer and, and, and others, you know, that's, that's all, classical theistic kind of theological reflection. So so I would say just in my experience as a as a layperson in you know my first kind of church ex- experiences but then also in more educational environments it was it was definitely baked in in that cake for sure. And then how did you how did you come across something different? Well, I think for me it, it kind of started this this is me now, you know, reflecting back and and trying to kind of pinpoint a, a a moment but but you know maybe it started earlier maybe it started later but something that stands out for me uh is an experience I had when I was a pre-doctoral fellow at University of Notre Dame Center for Philosophy of Religion just this really great intellectual environment very enriching relationships developed very stimulating. And the drill there was all the fellows at the center would meet every week uh, for two hour kind of workshop kind of time to talk about people's work, right? And, and, you know, lots of really great people coming through. And I just remember, uh, that was kind of my first experience, you know, of a philosopher whom I really, really respected, a Catholic philosopher, very sharp intellect, and uh, just a very lovely person. At one point, in kind of a, an exchange, uh, he he said, well, and I'll just kind of paraphrase, uh, and it wasn't to me, it was just someone else, I was just kind of watching this all play out. But he said, well, you're, you're claiming, though, ultimately, or your argument kind of assumes that that P is true, some proposition P. But P is condemned as his heresy by the church, or it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not consistent with church dogma. Uh, and so therefore, not P, right? And it's right. yeah. <laughs> like, what? It's a great fuck? argument. Yeah. You know, and, you know, my response to that just internally was like, but I thought we were after truth, right? Yeah. And we're trying to figure out what, what we, what we should believe is, is true about the world, not necessarily starting. And, and so that was kind of my, oh, I guess I can't, be Catholic, right? Not that I was thinking about converting to Catholicism, but, or, or uh, moving in that direction, but it was just like, that's, you know, that there's something about me that kind of viscerally responded negatively to that. 
And then I think that, you know, as I've continued to kind of work in philosophy of religion and philosophical theology, needing to kind of, you know, ask my, that question of myself as well, right? When I respond to, to doctrinal claims that, that you know, may, may have been, or theological perspectives, for example, that didn't seem to have an easy fit with classical theism, why am I not looking in those fields for, you know, for fruit, right? Why am I not uh, looking to see what these other perspectives have to offer? And so then it became apparent to me that, well, what if I just loosened up that, that starting point of classical theism? And, uh, and then that kind of set the, set the ball kind of rolling. That's awesome. I'm wondering if anybody else has something they, yeah. Uh, Sari, you have something to add here? I'm just wondering, Myron, like what aspect of classical theism that you let go of and like brought you into a new space was the most refreshing for you personally? Like what what sort of space did you discover you could move into that was most refreshing? Well, I think that uh, certainly, uh, maybe I'll, uh, before I kind of answer, I'll say that the notion of classical theism as kind of a fixed body of doctrine, I think, is also something that can be problematized. And wouldn't it be great if the what classical theism kind of meant, you know, or means 300 years from now is different because the Ooh. tradition has been shaped and reformed, right? Yeah. Uh, not capital R reform. But. <laughs> Let's just call it accurate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll just move yeah. on to so, that. Right. So, but I think, you know, uh, feminist theologies and queer theologies that don't often have an easy fit in places where classical theism is held up as the standard, you know, have just kind of relaxing that that starting point has caused me to kind of read different things, read different authors, and really gain kind of both, you know, edifying and intellectually uh, rich uh, resources. And just, you know, critiquing uh, the implicit kind of patriarchal framing of God, right? Now, again, I want to be careful, because I don't think that that's actually entailed by classical theism, but it's also, but it's often kind of assumed, though uh, others here might have different views about that. But but I think that's that's certainly one one area, uh, I think, uh, liberation theologies and other other ways of thinking through uh, the atonement and uh, Christological kind of issues. You know, if you if you give up kind of the uh, very common ways of thinking through uh, atonement uh, in in classical theism, I think that there are some life giving things there too. Yeah, I when I started going to seminary, I asked my pastor at my evangelical church I was going to at the time if he thought. You know, I knew I had a friend who was leaving the church at the time, and I was newly discovering that things like that existed, like queer theologies, feminist theologies, liberation theology. And I was thinking to myself, well, maybe if this person knew about these options, about these domains of theology, they wouldn't they wouldn't leave. They would they would continue to explore the Christian faith. And so I asked my pastor, I'm like, wouldn't it be better for someone to stay in the tradition, even if it's not our flavor yeah. of Christianity. And he was like, no, <laughs> he was like, straight up was like, mm, that's not better. <laughs> yeah. And I was shocked, you know, I was super, super bummed by that answer. But Were you shocked, Siri? Were you really shocked? <laughs> I'm not shocked, not shocked anymore. Well, we're going to move on to the next guest. And just, I want to make sure we get about 12 to 15 minutes per person. And then if we have more time, of course, we, we have plenty to riff on. So let's mix it up. Let's go boy, girl, boy, girl. So Sari has already spoken. We haven't heard much from Sarah. Let's get 
hard-hitting theologian Sarah Lane Ritchie into the ring. <laughs> Let's do it. I have to say, I'm always a little bit embarrassed when people say that my title is actually, you know, as, as, a, as a title of a theologian, which it is, but like I so do not ever feel like an actual real theologian. Uh, yeah, you've told me that before, but you haven't yeah. presented any viable alternatives. So I continue well, to refer to you as one. I've seen her called a neuroscientist. Oh She's my also God, played so, a neuroscientist. You're not so a neuroscientist. I have <laughs> had I have had like actual like conference organizers for conferences for like hundreds and hundreds of people like produce materials, like like pay to print materials where I am listed as a neuroscientist. I'm like, would you please stop setting me up for failure here? Like <laughs> I, there's nowhere to go but down. <laughs> can, you just, can you just stop? Um, psychonaut Sarah. Ex- well, that's also we, that. Psychonaut. Also psychonaut. But that's another conversation. All right. So what, um, what's your what's your number one? Uh, right, my number one. Concept? My number one. Um, so, you know, it's really hard to narrow these down to two. What's interesting when I was thinking about my top kind of like four or five of these, what I noticed was that each of my kind of big ones has a – very strong role in my research life now, but had a very personal origin story, right? Oh, cool. So I do a lot of, I, mean, I do science and religion, particularly focusing on the relationship between uh, divine realities and human experience, particularly like, like human, like the human mind, human mental experience and all the embodied cognition that goes into that. And, you know, basically looking at human experience of God, the divine aspect of that, and then also the human responsive aspect of that. Um, I think the first thing for me when it comes to my deconstruction journey would, would center around what I would call a lack of personal experience of God. It's, in fact, it's not actually dissimilar to what Myron is saying, because I uh, I started off in conservative evangelicalism. Like I had a very particular version of God that was presented to me, and that was definitely the God of classical theism, but it was also a God that was extremely personal, right? Evangelicalism really focuses on a personal personal relationship with Jesus, right? It's not just a deistic God uh, that's out there somewhere that you don't really relate to. There's a real emphasis in at least evangelicalism on a personal experiential relationship with a saving God. And it can get almost romantic sounding at times, right? You know, I don't need to go into all like the contemporary worship lyrics that basically talk about your relationship between Jesus or God, the Father, as being you, you, they could basically be like a, a contemporary love song, right? And in some ways, that's not a terrible thing, but in a lot of in a lot of ways, it, it can be really tricky. And I was always a person. I am. Always, I have always been a person that values connection, a felt sense of personal connection with others as being like the most important thing in the world to me, right? So my relationships, my close relationships, my personal and intimate relationships are like the most important thing in the world to me. And if I don't feel connected with somebody, like I, my, my life ceases to have meaning. <laughs> so it was like sensing personal connection with other people and the world and God is so important. And for my entire life, I struggled to experience God in a way that felt real. Um, from the time I was a little girl, I felt that I lacked what other people were experiencing. I would hear other people talking about hearing God talk to them or feeling God's love for them or sensing God's presence in a particular circumstance. And I was always like, how do I get some of that? Um, I'm just glad that you were willing to become friends with me when you knew that that's how I always talked about God. (laughs) You weren't turned off by that. I know. Well, no, but this is the thing. I was always so drawn to it. So, so hungry for it. My yeah. entire life, I've, there's never been a day in my life when I have not hungered and longed for God. Right. So that's always been there. And the problem for me, though, is that it was definitely a personal God. And 
most Christians listen to this would be like, well, that's great. You're supposed to long for a, per- a relationship with a personal God. But what does that look like when this God is supernatural and invisible and doesn't have like a body, right? What does it mean to relate to a personal God when there's no facial expression? There's no touch for me. That was a big thing. Like there's no physical, there's no physical interaction with this God. You're, you're basically depending on stuff that happens in your mind and on like, your external world, right? Like your community, the Bible, all these things. So I was not experiencing any felt sense of relationship with a personal God. And when I was little, it was kind of harmless. So I remember laying in bed one night and being like, I need to figure out if God is actually real. I think maybe God is not real. And that would be absolutely devastating to me. I need God to be real. So let's figure out if God is real. And I said, okay, God, here's the deal. I need you to change the last word of this book that I'm holding to a different word. So I'm going to close this book and then I'm going to pray and then you need to change the last word into a different word. And then I'll know that you're real. Right. So this is me as like an eight year old. Right? I love this so, story. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know, that's me. That's me. And it's an ex- so, science experiment, basically. <laughs> I know. It's, 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 it kind of was. I'm like, there's got to be a way to figure this out. And I remember like, like when I read the scripture passage about the prophet, like laying a fleece out for God. Right. So basically Indian. testing yeah. God to see if God would show up. Right. And I was like, well, my heart's in the right place. You know, I just want to, to know that God is there. So this was relatively harmless at that point, but then it started to get more serious. I remember when I what was What word um, did it change to? It did not change. <laughs> no, oh, you should have you should have had a book where the last word what the last word was end, like the end. Yeah. Be like, and then God changed it to the beginning. Yes, I know, right? There are so many places this yeah. could have gone. Yeah. Missed opportunity, God. Um yeah. And then, so as I got older though, um, things started to get a little more intense for me. I was not a normal kid. I was not, I was so, um, I always was concerned with ultimate things, right? The big questions in life. And none of us I, were normal kids, Sarah. I know it's true. This is why you don't become a nerd like us. If you were people like, on the call, people listening to the episode, <laughs> everyone's know. like, yeah, that sounds like my childhood. <laughs> I know. I know. Right. When I was 13, I, um, Two, th- two major things happened. I went to a uh, an enormous, it was an Acquire the Fire. I don't know if any of you remember Acquire the oh, Fire yeah. or Team Mania. Yep. Okay, so I went to a Team Mania Acquire the Fire event. Uh, it was a major one in the Pontiac Silver Dome in Michigan. 70,000 people there. It was called Day One. I go to this event. It was the first thing I'd ever been to like this. I, was, I had grown up to that point in a Southern Baptist church in rural Northern Michigan, like on a farm. And so this was like a big freaking deal for me. So I went to this thing. It was the most, one of the most immersive experiences I'd ever been in um, to that point in my life. Like the newsboys were playing. There's like audio adrenaline. Ooh, like, yeah. All these Christian rock bands were there. And then Ron Luce gets up and is like, bring in the word. And, and you're like, like, and, like take me these- to your leader. I need to experience to this they personal God. In hell. It's like a whole thing. Okay. So it's like, we got some in jokes here, guys. And then, and then, so they, the, the worship music was happening and then the speakers were speaking and I just felt like someone was speaking my language. There were people in this room that were concerned with the, with ultimate reality in the way that I was. Oh, yeah. And I felt like my hunger and desire for God was being plugged into a promise that God was actually there and wanted to like engage with me on the level that I wanted to engage with God. Wow. So I, you know, got down on my knees, like all the other kids there and like, rededicated my life right to Jesus. I mean, I'd prayed the salvation prayer like every night for 10 years because I never thought it worked, but like, you know, I just really did it for good that time. And like, I felt like my whole body was alive, right? Like I felt like my entire, my whole like being was in love with God, whatever I was feeling, I was in love with it. I was having a religious experience, 
And yeah. it was uh, mediated through um, the masses, like crowds of people, tens of thousands of people. There was music, there was mood lighting, there was persuasive rhythmic preaching. Like I now know all the pieces of this that went into this incredibly like, like euphoric experience, but I felt connected. I felt connected to the people around me and to God. So then later that summer, like a few months later, I was 13. I raised all this money. I, 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 and I, and I went on this mission trip with Team Mania to Ghana for a month and had an incredible time. And I was like on the, I was like over the moon. I was like, I'm, this is my life. I have found my purpose in life is to like follow God in this way. Fast forward to a year later, I went on another mission trip with Team Mania to Bolivia this time. And I don't know what happened like in between. Part of it was just maturing a bit, but like I felt I was so homesick. And I had by that point stopped feeling God's presence like altogether. I was not feeling anything experiential anymore in the way that I had like the previous year. And it was, I was so disappointed. I felt like the world had, like the bottom had dropped out of my world. And I never really recovered from that, actually. I'm not really sure what happened cognitively to me. I think it was just like a, I, developmentally, my brain and my mind were, I was just like, I was changing and evolving and growing, going through adolescence. And I just was in a different place. And I didn't feel all the same feelings. Puberty and, um, made it impossible for you to experience God the way you had before puberty? Absolutely. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I no longer could experience God. Yeah. So that wouldn't have been a deal breaker. I think I could have kind of gotten through that. But then some of you may have heard, some of you who are listening to this podcast may have heard me speak about this on a different episode or may, may have been a patron episode. Um, but when I was 16, my family moved, uh, we were living in pa- Pakistan, long story, and we moved to Bangladesh, another long story. And my mom got cancer. She'd had cancer for years, but it wasn't discovered. And uh, so she, she was diagnosed with cancer, stage four terminal cancer. And she um, was very, very fast. My parents didn't tell us that she had cancer. They, they wouldn't confirm that with us. So we never had conversations about her dying or anything. So she was diagnosed in June and she died in September. And I remember this moment where I was lying in bed the night that she died. It was in Northern Michigan. It was nighttime. It was a warm summer or warm, like fall evening. And I had my window open and my bed was right next to the window. And so my window was open and the breeze is beautiful part of Northern Michigan. And like there was the breeze was coming in and it felt like maybe I could meet God in that moment. Right. Like I was like, okay, this is like my mom just died. And your whole body, I was in shock. And I laid there that night and prayed to God. And I said, God, I'm not going to be one of those people that blame you for my mom dying. I know that this is, you know, bad shit happens. I get it. Like, I know I'm not blaming you for my mom dying, but I need to know that you are there. I need to know that you are real and that you love me. I just, that's all. I just need to know that you're real and that you love me. And if I know that, if I experience you, I can get through this and this will, I will survive this. And I didn't, it didn't happen. I did not experience God then. And for years, years and years and years and years, I never felt that sense of connection with God. And I was somebody who was seeking in all the ways that you're supposed to seek. And I was praying and I was longing, I was hungering. It got to a point finally, where I said, you know, if there is a God and this God is not able to respond to my longings and sincere desire to know this God, then that's not a God worth loving or serving. Like it was like, it was like, I don't think there's a God because if there is a God, God must be love and a loving God would not withhold like relationship from a person who is seeking him. Right. So I think that I will stop that part there. That's the narrative there is that loss of uh, a lack of personal connection with God. And then recent, and in the years since then, my whole life has been about trying to understand 
how and why people do and don't believe and how and why people do and do not experience God and questioning whether or not we are, have any agency and how we experience God. Okay. I have a couple thoughts here. First of all, if you thought that was interesting, but want to hear more of a back and forth between Sarah and I on that topic, you should go back and listen to episode number 39, Psychedelics and Other Spiritual Technologies. I think a little bit of an underrated episode, actually, of the show, one of my very favorites. So I'll just say that if people want to hear more about that. Also, there's something I realized something funny as you were talking that like having that conversation with you and then, you know, previous conversations before we recorded that episode, as well as having conversations with Myron about cognitive science of religion, which is like two episodes before your episode, all this stuff that happened at Theopsych two Julys ago, those are like the two biggest, I don't know, events in the road for me in the last few years of my own theology changing. Uh, and now I have both of you guys here on the show as I tell a story about my theology changing, which is very funny that it's uh, the two of you. I, I wanted to respond by saying there's a cool question in there, Sarah, which is, what does it mean that God is personal? And therefore, you know, if we experience God as personal, what is meant by that word personal? And that's something that I would like to, I would like to spend some more time thinking about. Yeah. So just two sentences to add on to what you, to that question, it links to actually what Myron was talking about. You know, there are different ways of understanding God. There's a classical theist way and there's, yeah, there's a real emphasis on a personal God. And there is also a question about the extent to which other versions of God can be personal. What would it mean for a panentheist God to be personal, right? And then the flip side of things is that when we talk about something being personal, it's always going to be mediated through our mind, through our brains, right? And our bodies, right? And we have a very particular understanding of what is personal and it's an embodied understanding of what is personal. And it's so unclear what it means to be connected to a God that is personal if that God does not have a body like ours and is not communicating. We're not receiving input data from from a physical being in front of us. And it's really interesting that we use personal language for God when it has to be mediated when it's, when we're talking about God. I don't want to monopolize here, but there are actually two related questions here for me. One is if you're a person who like you, Sarah has an impulse to be religious, but does not experience God in a, in a, the kind of way that is recognizable from the descriptions of other people's experience of God, what do you do? And then the second question, the flip side of that is, if you're someone like me who does think that you experience God, but you have friends or loved ones who you recognize that they are taking the same steps that you're taking, but then not experiencing God, then what do you do as the person on the other side of that? Those two questions might engage me for the rest of my life. They're so interesting. I mean, Dan, the question I would ask you is like, you're, you're in training to be a psychologist, right? So if you know that one, not everybody has the same experience you do to the same stimulus. And also, you know, that we have evolved human minds that are capable and likely to form beliefs about a personal God for identifiable reasons, then should you not then question the legitimacy of your own beliefs because you know why you would want to believe them, right? So there's a causal explanation for why you would want to, you know, there's a real clear explanation for why you would want to believe or be inclined to believe in a personal God. So, you know, it's like a social psychology of religion thing, you know, evolutionary psychology kind of explanation here. Yeah. I, I think I, we can move on, but I don't think I'd want to use the word want to believe in. I think for me where the, the axis is on 
why does it seem so reasonable that I would interpret it as I have experienced God Mm -hmm. along with these other billions of people that have had similar experiences? I mean, there is a desire, sure, but I don't think the main reason that I interpret it that way is because of my desire to have it be that. It seems reasonable to me. I read all these books about prayer and I pray and I have a similar experience that they had. And I go, okay. So the the question is more what's happening to all of us, all of us that have similar experiences, if it isn't God? That's an interesting question. But it's a little bit less wish fulfillment personally because there's sort of some empirical reasons why I think, oh, I'm having a similar experience other people have had and I'm interpreting it similar to what they have interpreted. I see that Myron has a question for you, Sarah. So I'll, I'll give up the mic. I'm super curious if you could go back in time and ride alongside 13 year old Sarah on her way to acquire the fire. What would you tell that teenage girl? What words would you give her uh, as she's about to head into this huge kind of existential? You should host this show, Myron. That's a great. Oh my God. I know. Right. Driving the five hours from Northern Michigan in a 1994 green Dodge caravan. Like what would I have said to myself? (laughs) Oh my God. I would have, I think I, I, what I would have said is, um, that there will be think there will be hungers and desires that I will feel are being met and that it's important to recognize the validity of those hungers and desires, but to also recognize that they're not only meant to be filled in that kind of setting. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and what's behind that for me is that I now recognize that sometimes in life we have legitimate longings and desires and we think they're for God, but really there are other things going on in life that are basically indicative of problem areas, right? So there would have been other areas in my life where I wasn't feeling connected or loved or like I had any worth as a, as a person. And I can see those things now. And I recognize now that I had some misplaced kind of, I was expecting God to do things that really other parts of my family and community should have been kind of doing. And I was putting a lot on God. Yeah, that's what I would have said. That's a great question, though, because it actually now sometimes you need to like talk to your inner child or like yeah. the person in, you know, the person in you that is still kind of that 12 year old, 13 year old. Yeah, it's pretty wild to me that when you get to the part, I mean, the part of your story where your mom passed and the prayer you prayed, yeah. if you were to watch that like a movie and then you just the thing comes on screen that says 10 years later. Yeah. And you're like getting your MDiv or whatever. Like you would yeah. not see that coming. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it makes sense, I guess, because of your particular research question. Yeah. But and you, know, let's, why you didn't just walk in an opposite direction. I know, but this is a thing. This is a thing. Like I've talked to you guys before about how I would never be a happy atheist. Like I could be an atheist, but I would not be a happy one because that longing for God and for ultimate love and this spiritual kind of foundation for life rooted in Christianity, that is like a longing that has always been there, has never left me for one day. Like, but there have been so many times when I wish I could have walked away, right? I wish so much some days that I could just not give a, (laughs) but I Mm -hmm. give all the guys, I really, really give a lot Mm -hmm. on this one. (laughs) Even though you have this voice that is very loud because you say it, that you know the evolutionary reasons why. Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of that. You might be inclined to think those things, but yet you still pursue yeah. And I, so, so one question that I have for myself, and actually this is, this becomes actually really important for me now that I have a little girl. Um, I, I actually think a lot about, all right, do I want to raise my daughter 
hoping and longing for a relationship with a personal God. Because if I had grown up in a different context where that wasn't expected, if I had grown up and grown up in an atheist household where I wasn't expecting to have like some sort of intimate relationship with a personal Jesus, I would have learned to, I think I may have learned to fill those needs elsewhere or in different ways. And then I would have been able to come to a different version of God, maybe like a more progressive version of God. And it would have felt satisfying because I actually feel find the more liberal versions of God to be incredibly unsatisfying a lot of times. Mm. And, and, and I understand why evangelicals are evangelicals. I mean, I'm not one, but I get it. So I don't know. It's like, it's, it's if anything, I would go back to my younger self and, and, you know, even maybe change the narrative in my family, but there you mm. go. I might regret this, but let's see if we can do trips item before we take a bathroom break. I do want to say, Sarah, maybe some of what came up there, we will add to our ongoing list of things for us to talk about in our regular every couple, every two, three months episodes. I I have a couple ideas. Trip, let's hear from you, man. All you've done mostly thus far is occasionally unmute and drop a theology joke into our well, y'all gave me shit last time we all hung out that I talk too much, but that's because I just drink if I'm not talking. So <laughs> is that what's going on tonight, too, for you? Oh, definitely. <laughs> um, well, I might have to hold it for a while then here, but l- nonetheless, let's let's see what happens no, down be, this road. I can be short. Um, no, you can't. And I, not, I love you anyway. So let's just do it. No, I'm going to be really short. I just opened the first beer I brewed since being in Scotland. It's called Dasein. I've placed with it a couple of times. It is a dark saison, 9.4%, in honor of Heidegger, Martin Heidegger. So this wasn't on my list of things I sent you on the thing, but this is, I think this will be short. Heidegger really helped me in college. I was a philosophy and theater major and had deconstructed and like gone like Heidegger's the philosopher if you're a continental philosopher who everyone relates to. And then you get to like Derrida and Deleuze and Foucault and all that kind of stuff. And then you become that person at a party where anytime someone says some cherished picture, image, symbol, sign, ritual, or anything that matters to them, it could be like Star Wars, it doesn't matter. You just like to deconstruct it and remind them that they're just escaping the impending finitude and nihilism of everything that's plaguing the world, right? Like, yeah, um, they're distracting themselves from their own eventual death and the yeah. anxiety and so attendant to it. Like, yeah. uh, I, I remember being there, and that was the first time I took a class that the kind of social science perks of religion, you know, was in it. So it was my sophomore year. I just finished hanging out with. Derrida, which was really not good experience if you grew up Baptist. And even though I was, you know, functionally metaphysically an atheist, I was still a Baptist. So I was like a Baptist atheist. So you read your Bible and prayed to know God every day. You know how that is. <laughs> um, and so how old are you at this point? 19, you know, sophomore okay. year of college. Yeah. And like over Lent and especially Holy Week, I've always read through all the gospels and you know, I had been thinking about which religious form of existence I wanted to participate in, and I was like really into going Taoist, partially because of Star Wars, but also just because the Tao is cool. And I was reading the Gospel of Luke, and when it gets to the part where Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and there's like good social science reasons that it's positive to participate in a, a tradition, right? Well, I was sitting there, and 
it, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what to do. The Father, forgive them part. I'm like, if there is an ultimate reality, it should be like a loving parent, right? Like, otherwise, we're screwed. But it was the they don't know what they're doing part that really hooked me. I'm like, we are dumb as shit. Like, if there's one unifying fact, like factor of human beings, it is that we are so ridiculous that we harm the people we love the most. We remain ignorant of wisdom that could bring about more life-giving situations. And then after we make the stupidest mistake possible, we're like, hey, maybe that guy was the son of God. And it's just right there. So I said, I don't know if any of this is true, but are there positive social science reasons for operating within a theopoetic structure of a religious community? And then I said, Heidegger suggested that authenticity, the task of authenticity, isn't the facticity of whatever, like your sacred canopy, the structures and all those things. It's how you engage and relate to it. And so I like remember sitting there going like, I'm going to attempt to relate to the mythopoetic liturgical structure of Christianity in authentic ways. And uh, now since then, obviously like, I've like expanded a lot of different questions and came back around to, uh, but I, my, my like least Christian phase was 19 uh, and, you know, metaphysics and all those things have come back in through the process door. But like, I remember that moment. And then I'll just say this for those that like want something like that, like they desire for the community, you know how much, how freeing it is <laughs> to go to a religious service, not caring if you agree with everything someone's doing, because the most wow. important thing that's happening there is that a community of people have decided together in the most imperialistic, domineering, death-dealing empire of all time and call a homeless first century Jew Lord. Like that's badass. It's good news. It's exciting. And uh, I just that, like after that, I like felt comfortable volunteering for leadership positions and eventually getting ordained and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I would say like that was a transition point. And it was when I realized you don't have to like the truth of the faith isn't the sacred canopy or the structure that you're thrown into the world because no one picks where they are, their family, their friends, the, right. all that kind of stuff. It's actually how you enact that uh, gift. And in the enactment of the way of Jesus, you can find a truth that if there is one, it should be true, while at the same time recognizing a lot of people under that sacred canopy, under that form of life, are uh, not doing that. Anyway, there's my short version. That's awesome. There's, there was something delicious about the fact that as you were saying that we are stupid and we ruin good things, that your Zoom background is the – Four Seasons Total Landscaping <laughs> press screener background. Yeah, it's um, the neo-Calvinist expression of uh, of American democracy. <laughs> I wanted to kick around to other people. There, there's a moment in that story before we get to sort of like Preacher Trip came out there in in my favorite ways when Preacher Trip rears its head. But before we got to that moment of you kind of going, okay, there are social science reasons to try this like the the motivation was not devotional at this moment it's like people are happy their marriages do better they you know these kinds of like just generally found benefits i wanted to ask the other three of you have you had a moment like that either when you were at a low point or out of faith or like myron before you became a christian or like me i i have some days like that where 
I'm just not vibing on that spiritual level, but the, all the other benefits sort of keep me going until something, you know, inspiring comes back around for me. Totally. Anybody have anything like that or either, either like, do you have days like that or, or was it like this at a time when you weren't really believing where you were on that kind of in motivational interviewing, it's called ambivalence. You're sort of teetering between options and you kind of could go either way, right? So you're not full on committed to a new course of action, but you're also not like, nah, I'm not going to take that new course of action. I struggle with that. I have a lot of ambivalence about that question. Um, on one hand, it's just the opposite where when I am around, when I am not feeling it, well, I'm never, I'm, I'm very rarely feeling the, the God stuff, but um, when I'm not feeling it and I use that, I don't, I don't mean that as flippantly as it sounds. Uh, and other people are, which has been most of my life. It sucks. It sucks. It's like, Oh my God. Like I am just, I feel isolated. I feel really, really isolated from, from my community. Actually, I find it really ostracizing to not be able to personally connect to the thing that they all are. On the other hand, I have been really fortunate to always have had amazing Christians around me in my life. I know a lot of people just have just been really hurt by Christians, but I, I, for the most part, have been super lucky and fortunate to have some amazing Christians around me. And these people have always treated me with completely like unconditional positive regard, have loved me. They don't, I mean, they care what I believe, but they, 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 they just, they love me and, and are close to me, draw me close. They bring me in even when I am not like where they are. And that's always been remarkably compelling and it's never been conditional. That's not true. Sometimes it's been conditional, but like I've been lucky enough to always have had people in my life who are Christians and for whom love and regard for me has not been conditional. So yes, in that sense, yes. So the community aspect, I would say yes. Trip sometimes gives me like the phrasing I need to describe the umbrella that ties me to Christianity. And there's a sense I never would have identified as atheist or stressed about that. I was more like... I guess staying within Christianity became a problem for me because it seemed like there was such a incongruence with just the way you treat people. And there were things that I was supposed to believe, or I thought I was supposed to believe, that I was so embarrassed to tell certain friends of mine, close friends. And that just, that incongruity just was like, felt just almost sickening to me. Like, so I had to sort of sort that out. But my sense of I do have a strong sense just as a person of the sort of enchanted nature of the universe and the the magic feeling of just of intimacy and friendship and group worship experiences and all that kind of stuff. I can't imagine a world where that wasn't a part of of me and and how I saw things. And I know still a part of me knows I've you know I I do a lot of time reading CSR literature for my job (laughs) and I know that it could all be made up that I could just really, it's really just adaptive for me to be that way, but I still don't care. I choose the most beautiful form of theism that I can discern and, you know, becoming a, I think Tripp said this once as, you know, a steward of the tradition in that way and in a form that I can, that I feel is good news for all people, and that I can sort of describe without without hesitation as being good news to to every person. That's where I'm going to land. So I want to kick this out there to you guys. That reminds me of something that also came up for me with Trip. What you said, which is like this idea of if if anything is ultimately true about sort of the universe, the directionality of the universe, this is what should be true. That God is like a loving parent. 
And I have thought of this as kind of a it's a type of Pascal's wager Mm -hmm. without the teeth of of the original. So just a refresher in case you don't know Pascal's wager. It's this idea that, like, if you are a Christian and you could be a Christian or you could reject Christianity and you could be right or you could be wrong. And there's four quadrants and you kind of you combine them each. And and the worst one would be to be wrong about Christianity and not be one. Like then you go to hell. And if you are wrong, but you are a Christian, well, you just die like the atheists think you do. The problem with Pascal's wager is that it's not very good at motivating religious devotion to just do a cost benefit analysis of going to hell. But I think of this as like a soft version of Pascal's Wager, where um, it's not like hell's at stake or heaven in the kind of like eternal destination, but a kind of a mini Pascal's Wager moment by moment does seem to me to be present. Here's where being a Christian inclusivist and non-exclusivist really matters. So I'm not saying that other religions are in the other category. I just mean... I'm aware of this tradition that I was raised in that points to a kind of ultimate meaning that is beautiful and restorative and that makes sense of things like art and beauty and why I love films. It makes sense of why a painting can blow me over. To use a a language that Tripp uses uncomfortably a lot, it makes sense of moments during lovemaking where you seem to meld with your partner. Now, it could be false. That could not be the case, that there is no meaning and no directionality. But what do I lose if I'm wrong about that and I live as if there is none? And what do I gain? And what do I lose if I live as if there is that meaning and then I I die and it isn't that way? I actually don't think I've lost a thing. I think I still got all of this, you know, meaning in my life, loving of neighbor, you know, pursuing the virtues uh, that kind of a thing. Myron, you haven't spoken in a while. Let's get you in here. Yeah, I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches here, just hearing all you guys talk and uh, just learning learning so much about my friends. So Pascal's wager, when we, my observation of how my students at, at Trinity Western gravitate toward it, there's a certain subset for whom it just gives them space to be okay with their sense that maybe there's no evidence for Christianity, but they still want to believe it. Mm. Uh, And so it's uh, a way uh, that they can kind of navigate that space. Just reflecting on my own kind of journey and just that, that question about, you know, what do you do when you're not kind of feeling the the vibe of it? Like for me, my family was kind of nominally Christian and I went to a private Christian high school. So I knew lots, I'd been in lots of churches, but it wasn't really a thing for me. And I was pretty firmly atheist agnostic. But when I uh, converted to Christianity and started going to church, right, church was, I loved it. I love, love, loved it. Sundays was the best day of the week. I got to be with all these people, got to do all these different things. Fairly early on, I kind of leaned into participating, you know, in, in uh, different different ways. So for me, that experience of just, you know, being with other people, uh, the way that Tripp talked about in, in you know, preacher trip kind of way, which was great. Uh, and so for me, then when, you know, things are not going well in the kind of the local community for different reasons, you know, that, that kind of affects my own kind of, of sense of spirituality and connectivity. And not that, not that that makes me think, you know, is it all, you know, 
would, would I chuck it all, but it, it just impacts my own thing. And I, the, that's going to be the thing that's going to influence me subjectively. But I think it's interesting too. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's hard sometimes to, to, to go to church and, and I need to get more of, of uh, whatever trips ingesting because uh, it's like, I, I don't want cringe moments on Sunday mornings. Right. Like, and the, the longer you kind of study and read and, you know, becomes maybe, maybe become settled on a few things that you think are reflect your values. Then when they get violated on a, in, in a community, it's, it's hard to participate. And so for me, someone who's for whom, you know, that that's actually an important thing. Like, that's probably the lowest time times for me when I feel like, oh, this, this isn't, this isn't a place to feed my soul. It just, it just, you know, destroys it. Can I ask you um, a question? And so, so yeah, when you say that I'm usually more offended at going to academic conferences that of professionals that talk about God than I am to church because you know what they do not have at AAR prayers of confession where they at least have to lapse into being honest for a second Right. So like, I actually find most like professionally. No, they, they do. It's just that at academic conferences, we confess. Well, other sins. There's that. But, you know, like I not, no, not exactly the same, <laughs> but I, I find the um, unlike those who grew up in like really restrictive homes, like I grew up in a ch- church planters home, but it was like the best experience of any of my friends with religion. Right. So mm-hmm. I. I get I don't have baggage, but in my head, my experience in churches, even and I it spent years before I came to Scotland, I would travel two times a month to different churches and speak. Even when I went once, I didn't know anything that was going on, and I didn't put effort into this. My natural hermeneutic of a co- congregation is everyone here, no one's forced to be here. They all showed up because in some way it contributes to their existence. So I just assumed I have to like cultivate ways of receiving it that it's a blessing to them. Now it's a lot harder at my fundamentalist in-laws place. I wonder like, like how you would see the difference between the two, like between the academic inquiry and then like the inquiry of a community and formation, like how, like as a philosopher of religion, how do you, how do you parse the differences? Because in part of this, I've been sitting in this really horrible series of AAR sessions back to back for the last three days where I'm pretty sure me and four of the hundred and some people are the only ones that don't think conciliar Christology is just obligatory. So I just feel overwhelmed that they're defending a God I would never worship, you know? And I guess the churches that invite me to speak probably don't worship a conciliar Christology God, but anyway, sorry. I, Maybe maybe you think the stakes are higher in academic conferences with respect to what's being claimed, and so that's why you're you're more sensitive in those areas. Whereas if you're going to churches, it's not like you know it's just more about connecting with the people. Yeah, maybe that's a good point. Well, I guess I feel like they should know better. Like when they make why would you think when they make sweepingly that? dismissive statements <laughs> to the to things where I'm like, I know who's on faculty with you. Like you're literally acting as if they don't exist. Well, quote, quoting yeah. someone, I don't know who, but apparently we're yeah. like, we're all shit. We do terrible things to each true. other. <laughs> uh, we have. <laughs> yeah. We destroy the things we love. Let's take a little break. I'm actually, there's not going to be an ad here for the Patreon. Here's the ad right now. Go check out SoYourDeconstructing.com. See if there's anything helpful for you on there and think of a couple people that might benefit from it. 
that I'm not asking you to join the Patreon this week. I'm just asking you to check out our website. It it is nonprofit. It cost us money to make it and to to keep it up there. It's just the thing we put out in the world. So that'll that's the ad. But we will take a little break to use the restroom and play some music, and then we're gonna come back. and I want to throw an idea out to you guys that has been percolating and formulated in a specifically fun way for me just now. Uh, and then we're going to hear Sari's story after that. So see you in a minute. So first of all, well, welcome back. And Myron, Myron had to leave. He had an, actually an AAR, American Academy of Religion, session to be a part of of other Mennonite scholars. So we wish him the best there. I forgot to say this after Myron's story. I wish I could refer to myself as a pre-doctoral fellow. I just, I know that that's a technical term that is not true. I don't have a fellowship, but I am pre-doctoral and I'm a fellow. And I just love that phrase, but I can't What if you were a fella? A pre-doctoral fella. (laughs) That's your new Twitter handle. Twitter bio. That works. Pre-doctoral fella. Oh, man. Fella instead of like swapping fellow for fella just feels like that's got a lot of usage down the road. Yeah. Um, it is. I mean, that's that's you should definitely copyright that. Do something with that quickly. Yeah. yeah. OK, so here's something I wanted to kick to you guys for a second before we go into the next story. And it came out of a few things that a few of you were saying. One thing I have been talking about and thinking about as I get into this religious and spiritual harm and abuse research is this idea that religion is so – it's such a powerful force. So religion being powerful explains a lot. It explains why people can have these dramatic conversion experiences that they can be like cured of addictions overnight – that their brain can rearrange because of the, you know, these ecstatic experiences. It explains that people can have religious experiences and completely deci- decide to, to change the course of their lives, you know, almost on a dime that have these massive consequences. And it also explains why being hurt in these environments can be so destructive. And so here's my little C.S. Lewis metaphor, and I wonder what you guys think in real time. Religion is like nuclear fission. You can either use it to make an atomic bomb that is the most destructive thing in the world, or you can use it to continuously create free electricity as long as there are proper safeguards in place and is the most life-giving force that we are aware of on the planet. Of course, when that goes wrong, then you have you know, nuclear fallout, and it's similar to having a nuclear bomb go off. But it's like, what do you think of religion as nuclear fission in that? Is that a good one? Should I hold on to that? I like it also because there are way more ways that it can go wrong than it can go right. Oh, yeah. good. So it's so easy to fuck up nuclear fission, right? Yeah. Or fusion. Are we talking fusion uh, or yeah. fission? Yeah, I don't know which one. I have to look that up if it's fusion or fission. fission. Yeah. So um, we're, yeah, the thing that happens in a nuclear reactor. We're so, so... Um, yeah, it's much, much easier to f*** up than to do it well. Oh, I like that. That's good. Yeah. Okay. Sari, yeah, give me the thumbs up or down. Oh, yeah, it's good. I mean, you don't know. is this part of the show? Oh. 
Yes. Uh, we're, we're, we're taping. We're in here. We're live. I don't know. I just yeah, she, she, yeah, she thought it was good, but it shouldn't be in the show, Dan. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm taking from that, too. No. Yeah. I, was, I don't know. It just seems like a lot of things could be like, oh, it could be good, used for good or evil. You know what I mean? It might be like Spider-Man. That. But yeah, <laughs> you're right. Yeah, you might. But I get what you're saying in that it's extreme. Very when powerful. you get it right. There's nothing like it. And it's so healing. And, you know, can cure trauma and all these other things. And then when you get it wrong and all the ways you can get it wrong, like Sarah's saying, it can. Yeah, you can replace bad attachment to your parental figure with attachment to God. I mean, it's got all of this just insane power. Okay, (laughs) but let's move on. I'll go last. So, Sari, let's hear your number one concept or topic that has had an interesting role in your faith journey. Yeah. Well, I was thinking a lot about like women's issues and I've had a lot of personal issues with like my role in churches and stuff. I remember being taught when I was younger that women were more easily deceived than men and like openly and all that kind of stuff. But that I I decided to kind of crawl back to like before I changed my mind about all that stuff and like got to even before kind of changing my understanding of how I read the Bible and how the Bible communicates truth. Even before that is some stuff that happened with me kind of psychologically. My, my faith prior to maybe seven years ago or something was completely intellectual. I, I was hardcore. I was totally into it. I was completely committed, but Faith for me was about getting the list of ideas right and getting the right theology and having a list of of doctrinal truths that you could say, yep, I believe that. And, you know, once you got through, once you believed all those things, you were good with God, your soul was going to heaven, all those things. So, like I said, I, I kept going to really reformed churches, the kinds that I was, I grew up in. I found like a, a little bit more loosey-goosey kind of evangelical, non-denominational, but very Calvinistic church to go to as an adult and was sort of like, like, well, is it okay if we dim the lights during worship? That seems like manipulation <laughs> and feelings are bad and thoughts are good, right. you know? Um, so kind of had that like in the back of my mind or whatever. But then, like I said, I went through this like shit show of a marriage to a, someone who turned out to be a heroin addict. It was like very, it was just, it was very intense. It was a rated R movie. It was every, my, my brain was completely by the end of of the cycle of manipulation and that you go through when you're living with an addict. And so for the first time in my life, I looked for therapy and coming out of that that situation to kind of like sort myself out and I was severely depressed and all of that. So we started she she taught me how to how to practice mindfulness. And it was a new idea to me. I was kind of like, "Uh, you know, is that okay?" <laughs> but I'll just try. Are it. you opening yourself up to a demonic <laughs> to spirit, demonic right? Forces, whatever. Right, um, sure. Yeah. So, but I started doing it and I started doing it and kind of like, so I started out with like a basic mindfulness meditation. And then I would kind of transition into just a sort of a listening prayer sort of thing. And my experience was phenomenal. Like I did experience the love of God. I would pray sort of in questions and I would feel a sense of an answer sort of like springing up next to the question within me. Like 
I had to kind of like sort out that experience. And then in therapy, I was learning to sort of like understand what I was feeling and seeing feelings and emotions as something you kind of pull on to find like deeper knowledge about yourself and the world like you could see why am I feeling this and then I was and then my thoughts were all scrambled like I could talk myself into all kinds of lies but then my feelings were illuminating truth for me so everything was sort of just flipped and then I went to seminary and that was kind of like where I was psychologically when I went to seminary and the very first class I was in I learned about the history of American Christianity, like modern history of American Christianity, and my mind exploded. And there were a lot of people in the class from all these different Christian traditions. And whereas before I would have said, you know, at at one point in my life, like, okay, can Arminians be saved? I th- <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, you have to be a Calvinist, all five points. And I was like, well... <laughs> <laughs> then they can't resist. It's irresistible. Right, yep. right. And then, you know, I'm sitting there in this class and I'm learning about where my tradition kind of originated. And I'm, you know, it's undeniable that I'm sitting next to all these people who also like love God, experience God, have valid reasons for the sort of like practices and, and ideas that they ascribe to. And I'm just like... I just gained this whole level of new level of intellectual humility. So I guess my, my topic that I'm pointing to from our website is sort of the spiritual practices, because what it did for me is what it actually, it loosened my grip on the idea that what was most important were doctrinal ideas and what kind of came with that was like a lot of other stuff. You had mentioned before, I think, Sarah, the idea that a personal relationship with God is most important. And I sort of think of that so differently now. It's like a lot of evangelical cultures say that, but what do they actually mean by that? Like, what is the content of the personal relationship? And it seems like if you had a personal relationship with God, it would lead to these, I don't know these different changes in, in your life. So anyway. So good. You, you just gave me all the notes I need now for our follow-up patron episode cool. that we're doing. Cool. I just wrote down the entire uh, structure of that chat <laughs> that we will have later Fantastic. and get into more detail on all of that. So you just saved me like 10, 15 minutes. I of saw you looking down. Through what I'm I wanted like, to... He's probably looking at his Instagram. No, No, I was taking taking notes the whole time. Yeah. (laughs) I just want to say before people respond to you, you, you've touched on so many parts of the website in that little eight minute, whatever story you got the therapy page, the spiritual practices page, the communities and churches page on the topics page. We've at least touched on women in Christianity. I think we've got some doubt deconstruction and reconstruction in there. We definitely got some hell atonement and salvation. Let's see. No, no Let's race. What's the URL or, for this website, Dan? It's you just say on the website. De- <laughs> so Why Man, did Siri really help put soyourdeconstructing.com together? She did. Yes. Wow, she was she, able to fit so many different elements of soyourdeconstructing.com. I know. I'm just saying story. that was an incredible, like, marketing CEOs should listen back to what you just did as, like, that's this why I make how, the medium books. <laughs> yes. 
But anyway, I could go on, but we got that was in that was like a master class right there. So, maybe but let's should, we should ask Sarah if she was going to make a website that included all the elements Sarah just said what the URL would be. What is that question? I don't know. What, You're supposed what do you to say think the of- website? You're supposed to say so you're It was Sarah you're such Lambert, a horrible not marketer here. Marketing professional. No, you don't realize that the the website lingers the third the third voice that they hear say the same phrase. So, so it was a setup that if you said, See, Oh, if I was really gonna make a website no marketing. Yeah. So you're deconstructing dot com. There we go. That's a third voice. Yeah. But let's let's get back to the substance of what Sari shared because it actually was very it was incredible and so much in there. I, I don't I feel like I don't want to respond first because I'll prop we're gonna go through all of that stuff again, you and I, Sari, and I'll I'll probably respond more in more meat there. But Trip or Sarah, I'd like to know what kind of stood out for you guys in hearing that. When you were talking, Sari, about how when your marriage ended you were going through you're going, you were in therapy and you were doing mindfulness and your, your gut, your emotions were starting to change and take you places that your, 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 even your mind wasn't yet. It sounds like your body and your, your body and your emotions, like your sort of your physicality was leading. And, you know, we've talked a lot about my kind of my own research about that, how that makes perfect scientific sense, but like, just on like on a visceral level, I, I feel that I just, I so, I so feel it. And it's like the, it sounds, it rings so true to me. Just being in this moment of, I mean, I'm assuming like incredible pain and brokenness and being with his therapist and also speaking to the power of therapy, yep. right? Uh, being with his therapist and, and and going through these practices and kind of, it's, it's almost like you're like alone, like in this room, I can imagine like a dark room or something or like venturing into like a forest by yourself and you don't have like a roadmap. You just know that you're sensing something and you're following kind of a different you're allowing yourself to be pulled down a different path that is different than what your brain is telling you has to be true. And that that eventually leads you back onto a right path. There's, a, sort of, like, there's so much trust there and a sense of like, kind of like, a, like an earthy kind of like organic sense of sinking into sinking into truth in a way that is not being mediated through like doctrinal content and, and trusting that you'll get where you need to go. I mean, in all, I think, you know, if you've gone, if you come through up through evangelicalism, you know, you're taught to distrust your emotions. You're constantly taught, don't trust your gut, never trust your gut, never trust your emotions. They will mislead you, especially if you're a woman. (laughs) And so I just, I love that actually this is, there's like redemptive value um, in, 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 in your, your practice, your embodied practice. It makes me feel like a lot of hope actually for people who are, are still stuck. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. I think that I am lacking that a little bit right now in my life, and I wish it weren't so. You know, Dan, you always talk about, like, it's a discernment process all the way down, you know? And your discernment is best kind of in focus, I feel like, when you're healthy in all the categories of ways a human can be healthy, spiritually, physically, you know, all those things, emotionally. And that some sort of spiritual practice is kind of a, is a path. And it's not the same for everyone. Some people are like, I tried meditation. It doesn't do shit, you know, and that's fine. Maybe it's something else for them. They need to go for a walk in the woods. That's fine. But some kind of spiritual practice sort of brings that discernment lens into focus. And I actually feel it lacking right now since like, you know, I have a baby now and I moved and all these crazy 
things that get in the way of doing it. But then you look at your, you know, social media to actually even dull feelings sometimes. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I feel weird. I'm just going to try to not feel that, you know. <laughs> but when you do it, like when you do the therapy process and you start following those threads, it almost can be a fun game once you like release yourself to the process and just like have that freedom of exploring because as scary as it might be and vulnerable and risky, maybe when you uncover sort of like the deeper truth, this is sounding so woo woo, but it's like, it's I mean, Dan, you can make it sound less woo woo, you know, maybe, but, <laughs> but, you know, it kind of becomes like a fun game. It's a treasure hunt and, you know, it's outside of your normal you know, maybe Myron would hate this outside of normal, like reason and logic structures initially, at least. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's woo woo. I mean, I think what you're saying is, is pretty empirically valid, right? Like it, I think if anything, it's actually kind of woo woo to think that the state of your body is unrelated to getting things right. right. Like that, that, you know, your body is actually completely separate from your mind accurately determining the truth, that's woo-woo. That's f***ing weird. What do you think is going on? First of all, you're positing some kind of immaterial substance that's doing the reasoning that's not connected to your physical brain, which requires calories. It requires minerals and vitamins and blood flow and electricity. Like, that's woo-woo to say that that stuff doesn't matter and i'm just up here a brain in a vat disconnected from my body and that's how i'm really going to get things accurate i think that's that's the crazy thing to believe sarah can i ask you one more question yeah uh like anyone ever says no to that can i ask you a question no you can't ask me a question uh actually uh vice president pence did that today did he really he just walked away oh yes took no questions at a press conference so yeah yeah you know there's that Sarah's um, cooler than VP Pence. I, I could oh. say no comment. No cool. comment. Okay, you can say that. <laughs> Please feel free to say no comment to this. But so you said that at the beginning that you were going to. You had originally thought about saying something about being a woman and and mm. bodies and things. Like, is there any part of the kind of the original bifurcation between sort of your emotions and your senses and your kind of cognitive intellectual content surrounding Christianity. Is there a link there for you with your embodied experience as a woman and uh, everything that's wrapped up in that in evangelicalism? I mean, for me, I'm saying this because for me, that was a huge part of my own deconstruction actually was being a woman or being a girl, being female and having a female body and like a lot of sexual stuff wrapped up in there as well. And, and, and just like shame about being in a body even and regardless of what I was doing with that body I just I'd always had this inherent sense of shame and 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 it seemed like evangelicalism was always just better suited to men and um not even just like in churches but even in scriptures and 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 um the cognitive content of theological doctrines that were passed down to me seemed to be tailor-made for men and and then you know you couple that with just sort of the embodied experience of a girl or a young woman and that for me um also led to a real divorce um between my emotions and my gut and my kind of an embodied sense of the spiritual and my head so I'm like, I don't know if it was, was there a similar thing for you just about you embodied? It was, there, it was a body woman thing. There. Yeah. 
I'm not 100% sure because I've never had a male body, but I think that, and, but the ways that it did come into play was, were much later and kind of embarrassingly later because when I started going to seminary, I had never gone to a church that was cool with ordaining women as pastors. And I was embarrassed to like tell people like at Fuller and stuff like that, that was the case because it was, there's definitely like complementarianism at Fuller, but for the most part, it's very, you know, very affirming of women in ministry and women as pastors. But as I began being more involved in a church, working as a minister during that time, I started to feel really strong incongruity and then started to get mad about stuff that I had heard over the years. When I was younger, I played along with it really well because my personality was sort of, I don't know, naturally very intellectual and just like was really strongly into reason. And I was like an ENTJ. So I was like, I was like hung with the boys on like talking philosophy and stuff and and systematics. And I was like, yes, this is cool. Get all the ideas right. And honestly, like my family growing up was not super like, like, this is what you do with your feelings. You know, I was like, I was just more comfortable in the head, you know. So it wasn't until I sort of deconstructed that part of things that I started to bring myself as a woman into my faith. And I discovered that like feminist theologies existed and it started to help me make sense of what I was starting to get angry about. And then I I started to feel like this doesn't even make sense. Like, what are you saying? I can't be a pastor. I am a pastor. I'm pastor. (laughs) You know, like what can I not do? Or, you know, and the lines, even in the nicest flavor of complementarianism way, just didn't make any sense. You know, like you can speak here and now and teach here and now, but then not over here, not when you're standing here and give me a break. You can't get that from the text, you know? (laughs) Anyway, sorry, that was all over no, the place. No, no, no. The the pastor's covering is over his wife. No, a spiritual covering, it's very textual, guys. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. It's not just a post hoc way uh loophole so that men don't feel weird about themselves in church. It's a real thing. The the covering of the pastor. Um, the text okay, is clear. So <laughs> the text is f***ing crystal oh clear, you guys. <laughs> yeah. Just like the spiritual covering, so you sometimes don't see it. And that's why it's good to have godly male friends around so that we can cast spiritual coverings over you when you start to say things that sound like your own voice. We have to put it over that way other people could hear it. Yeah. It's actually – we're being really benevolent to you women. It's It's all a part of our – Christ-like self-sacrificial love for the for the lesser so sorry you, uh equal but different parts of God gender yeah <laughs> whoops Freudian when, slip the, <laughs> when when uh when I was an undergrad you know I mean I would grow a Baptist but if you always are at a church your parents go to right like it can lead to this really weird experience so the wife of the head of the Baptist Southern Baptist Convention spoke at one of the campus groups. Dorothy Patterson, and she like read a note from her husband before she talked to explain how she had the ability to preach. What? But it wasn't preaching; it was like speaking on his behalf. Like, and it's just things going on. And I went because I was like, I had friends that were going, and one of them I thought was like, "Well, she's cute, so I'm gonna go." 
it was my wife now, but I was like, I'm, I'm going to go to this thing. And I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm like looking around, like, is anyone freaked out about this? You know, this is weird. And then uh, one of my friends who's now a fundamentalist Southern Baptist preacher. I, I was like, this is kind of weird. Right. And he's like, yeah, I, I really feel like her husband has to be here if he wants to put his shroud of authority over her. And I was just like, <laughs> I can't. And so, and so I got up and just went into the bathroom. And that night, because this is my freshman year, I, I called my dad and was like, dad, do you know, there are like a lot of Baptists that think women can't be ministers and they got to use their like husband shroud. And I, and I'm like, He's like, what? And I'm like telling him this story. And he's like, yeah, well, Trip, you know, not everyone will have had the same experience you had growing up. And sometimes it'd be good. Sometimes it'd be bad. Like you just have to learn from these things. And, and he likes going on like being real pastoral. And I just said, dad, if God decides that only half of our species gets to speak from a pulpit, God's like an asshole. You need to pick a different religion. <laughs> and and he's like, I agree with your sentiment. Like, you know, and he's like trying to like yeah. go on. And then so the next time I went home over break, it was the first or second time Alicia went with me. And we got an argument where I was just like, you use male pronouns. I find that offensive. And the reason you're doing that is because the people at our church still think what I heard at school. I know you don't think that, but it gets communicated. So he stopped. He apologized to all the women in the house and hadn't used male pronouns again for God. And like I say that just because my dad was well-intentioned. Right. He was aggressive in his world, right? And it wasn't until his kid who he trusted, who was just like, you realize the consequences. This is ridiculous. He thought about it, prayed about it, and then said, I'm sorry. And he's never done it again. Like I've, like I've done it because I've been in Scotland where all these people put dicks on God all the time. <laughs> um, the, uh, a di- they when do. You say it's really he, ridiculous. You're putting a dick on God and God doesn't have a yeah. dick. You put the cock or you know, God has got a cock, every day, got a crown and all of a sudden patriarchy yeah. and hierarchy come right around the back end. Yeah. And, but if the, you're, but oh, if I you're a pantheist like, trip, then God has, Okay, every dick don't of every okay. dick animal. Come on, come on, reel it in. But he Re- also, but I, God also but, has every vagina. And, so it's yes, okay. yes. But I don't want to give and possession to anyone's private. Yeah. Sure, <laughs> sure. Fair enough. God does not have God's own <laughs> genitalia. Oh, okay. Then I'm the one that's been drinking the most, and I just wanted to emphasize, <laughs> yeah. not you. Like uh, you're giving God parts Mm -hmm. and i was just trying to say like sometimes you can hear something and realize that an unexamined practice in your tradition has an outcome that you don't want and you can just apologize and move Mm on like imagine your father who's a minister saying my bad i'm sorry i won't do it again and not doing it i think a lot of people that are listening to this like we'll have that, that that experience, and if we're lucky, our kids will do it to us. No, totally. Right? You all three just have new kids. At some point, your kid's going to call you out, and you'll have to decide: Do you want to be the parent that goes? Their experience embodied place in the world. Their spiritual insights value and matter to me. I'm going to take it. I'm going to consider it. And if they're correct, 
I'm just going to change directions. And too often when you're deconstructing and when you've had trauma or pain or frustration, you don't give people permission to change. And so I just want to say like, I kind of told a story. My dad probably wouldn't like me telling about him. And he also changed. And I remember like a couple of years later, he's told a story that he didn't use male pronouns, but it came across weird. And after it, he asked Alicia at lunch, like, you're like, should I have told that story differently or whatever? And then like volunteered to go like, was this affirming of your experience in leadership? I think that's cool. Yeah. Like don't put people that are in your life now past where you've been. They may not have realized the consequences of what they're saying and internalizing and how it's heard from other perspectives. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking today on a walk with Jaffrey, like I'm waiting for the like Ed Stetzer and other type of like kind of evangelical op-ed to come out that says the gospel in some part depends on all of us Trump evangelicals admitting that we were wrong to our kids. And like that if we don't, then the gospel will suffer as a result of that because we were obviously wrong. And so are we going to own up to it or are we going to pretend it never happened and move along much like, you know, German civilians in World War II or something, you ha- you can either own up or not. Obviously, Trump's not Hitler, but in the sense of pretending you didn't sacrifice almost all your values in a f-ing moment for a guy that your kids knew from the beginning was awful and is now trying to steal the presidency against the well, you know what? Fill it out however you want to fill it out. That will no, be the, but the question, Dan, is whether or not black people are really allowed to vote. And if you just recognize that anytime they're like you have a large amount of black people in the cities, namely in swing states, voting those areas, I, it's, it's a coincidence that's just not legal votes. Yeah. Yes. And if you Google on Parlor or something, that's what it told me. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not ever going to go on Parlor. You should Dan, for like you thirty also, minutes. Dan, we need to do your go story. Ahead, Sarah. Don't you? I need to. I do know. You? We're going to do it. Yeah, we're going to do it. Mine's going to be quick because it's going to become its own episode. And I'll explain that in a second. Because I realize it it like has a nice episode quality to it. But I did want to like, ask. And it's one my thing show. I'd, and, it's, and I can do whatever episode I want. No, 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 no. I want to know, does a husband's shroud of authority apply over Zoom? Oh, great Because if it's got to be in well, person, it really depends on their ontology. But, you're, but if you're meeting over Zoom, it's, it's a tough. perk of object-oriented ontology that it can extend over Zoom. Okay, let's leave that where it is. All right, so here's my concept and little story. For me, it is taking evolution more seriously. And let me—I'll give a little narrative, and then I have like—I've written down like five or six consequences of that that we don't necessarily need to unpack that I think would make for a nice episode. So around 2021, 192021, this is when we started touring and I initially dropped out of college after three years. Around that time, I know that I was already leaning toward, like I assumed that I would eventually be gay affirming. I hadn't put it all together yet. I probably hadn't said anything publicly about that, but privately I, I would talk about that. I would talk about it with my parents and like, you know, uh, if we, if we would talk to non-Christian band members on tour, like I would say things like, well, that's not, I'm, I'm not that kind of Christian or, you know, but I hadn't kind of worked it all out. 
And I would say the same thing was true for evolution that I assumed that like the basics were true, but I hadn't really looked into it. I didn't really know like how to talk about it or what I really thought. I didn't know how strong the evidence was. I didn't really know where, if there might be a difference between human evolution, other kinds, because I had gotten, frankly, a propagandistic education on this in high school. And then I I was a philosophy major. So I took very little science in college and probably didn't have to take biology at all. So let's see, this would have been about eight years ago-ish when I know that because I remember which apartment we were living in at the time. I thought, you know what? I said, I think God wants me to figure this out, but I don't think that's really true. I think I just wanted to figure it out. I thought, I think, I think God wants me to come to a firm conclusion on homosexuality and evolution, to which my friend lovingly said, probably God doesn't want you to do that. But if you want to do that, I think those are both textual questions for you. And I thought, okay. So that's when I really started looking at an inerrancy and started looking at like, what is the Bible? Those are the two questions that led me into doing that. And on the topic of evolution, I also read Kenneth Miller's book, Finding Darwin's God. And that blew some stuff open for me. I was like, oh shit, this is like a lot of evidence. Like the jury is not out on this question. Uh, including human origins. It is the jury is in. And for people who have looked at it, it is unanimous. There's interesting questions as, as Sari knows, maybe even better than the rest of us on the margins of all of that stuff. But the bulk of it is like, no, I mean, this is how it happened physically. And so this is the kind of world that we have. And that began a process with a lot of consequences for me to just embrace evolution, just the basic, you know, Darwinian model. And so let me just list off some of them. I've got four of them. Number one, it affected the way I thought about atonement, both from a psychological perspective uh, and developmental perspective, but it also brought in the question of one of my favorite theological topics, alien Christs, and how God would interact with non-human species if such exist. And once you recognize the size of the cosmos, you have to take that possibility very seriously. And the cosmos is not the same as evolution, you know, but I, they were tied together. I also hadn't learned much about cosmology or astronomy or whatever. So consider that all together. Number two is humanity's much smaller place within the cosmos and the cosmic story, our place on the timeline and our place spatially. And so kind of dethroning anthropocentric views of any any cosmic question. Uh, so perhaps we can still think of like image of God. You know, we think of these things anthropocentrically. Maybe that does make sense because God's interacting with us. But anytime we're making a claim about something beyond the human experience, well, actually now we have to like really decenter ourselves if we want to be accurate. Number three, it led to me taking science more seriously in general which then led to all kinds of other theological changes in various spheres. And then the fourth one and the hardest for me is it increased in my own mind, the role of suffering and chance in the actual world that we live in. And so there's some kind of chance mechanism going on, which I know there are different in, I think it's interesting. There's different mathematical ways of thinking about chance and randomness and genetic mutation. And, and, you know, there's different, 
ways of thinking about the chance between my and Sari's experience around prayer and experience of God versus Sarah's lack of that same experience, trying the same things. So what's the role of chance there? And then because of chance, there's, there's a really strong relationship between chance and suffering, physical, emotional, et cetera, suffering. And so what does that say about God? So the evolution thing led to all of these, all these vistas sort of opening up. Let me just say the episode idea. So the idea is that I have Sarah and Trip, you guys back, and we just do an episode on the consequences of accepting evolution for our own faith and just what we think theologically. I think that that would be really good if you guys are down. So we can go into those things in more detail in the future. Any thoughts uh, on any of that stuff? Did you ever try to carbon date a mollusk? <laughs> that came up. I forgot to say this in the intro trip. We have the homebrewed episode. That's also a launch party episode. I'll, I'll record an intro now after the fact, and I'll mention that because that was a funny. Yes, that. Oh, came I up. was. I was really just trying to recruit people to vote for me in the competition. <laughs> Uh, Sarah or Sari? Anything? Yeah, I think I think the, just the big one I would add to the list of the four that you just mentioned is that like the psychology of religious belief itself, right? So you now know that we have evolutionary reasons for believing all the things that we believe. I have an atheist friend who is a uh, an Oxford an Oxford astrophysicist, and she and I have discussions all the time about God and religion and the validity of belief. And she's like, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not really concerned about any of the debates for or against God, except that I'm just so clear on the fact that we are really good at bullshitting ourselves. We are yeah. just so good at like believing shit because we evolved to believe it. And then we create reasons for those beliefs after the fact. And I'm just, she, she's just like so compelled by her understanding of how we've evolved minds that can kid ourselves. So I think that's just okay. the one other thing. A note for that, though, that I and that I would really like to hear Trip and maybe Trip, you can tease it here a bit. Is I think that that's true. I think that's very, very true at an individual level, especially. And I think politics is a great example of that. So your evangelical family member who's posting conspiracy theory memes about the election or something, you know, without having to talk about it at all, just how quickly that family member, and it's sad how quickly they can self-deceive based on their <laughs> motivation to not be wrong about all this other stuff that that's connected to, that they've committed themselves to for the last four or five years. But there is a countervailing force, I think. And the term wisdom tradition is a good encapsulation of that countervailing force. That is that, yes, people do do that. We totally deceive ourselves all the time. But in the aggregate, we do sort of find out what works and good ideas beat out bad ideas and better explanations beat out worse explanations. So, for instance, the nice thing about the meme your uncle shared yesterday on Facebook is literally no one is ever going to think that's true 10 days from now, much less a thousand years from now. But someone might come up with something really interesting that happened because of the election that ends up being accurate. And that's going to, that's going to go longer. That's going to have legs. So, and it's actually not dissimilar to the peer reviewed research process. I think that so there's something about science and peer reviewed research and intellectual humility and wisdom traditions 
that are a countervailing force on our initial incredible ability to self-deceive. That's my two cents. So sweet of you, Dan. You still believe in epistemic progress. That's okay. I do. Yeah. Trip, you want to back me up here? Oh, I was waiting for what the question was. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, Mm -hmm. my general thought is the more I hang out with scientists, Mm -hmm. the more they remind me of fundamentalists. So, Mm -hmm. like, like with, like, the amount of metaphysical Mm -hmm. assumptions they make that are unexamined. And I would just say their arrogance is as impressive as people that make crazy memes that we think are crazy. But I, I, like, and I don't even know what to do with that. Like, just because I know which ones I like better. But if you're asking me, just like, I mean, deep down, I think I have a hard time not being a post structuralist. Like, in the story I told, like, it is a purely personal aesthetic reason that makes me so attracted to Jesus. And I don't mind if that's like a tribal thing, as long as the version of it isn't like tribally violent, hmm. because you know what happens when you aren't influenced by wisdom traditions like Richard Dawkins and he's an Islamophobic piece of shit. So like, at least I'm not going to be that like, you know, I, that's why I, I, I just don't uh, like the level of confidence people want is really the concerning thing. And I get uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Like I feel like I operate with, a whole list of probability structures and Mm -hmm. there's like, can this make sense to me rationally? And then like, why would I trust what I think is rational? But I guess I should trust something. There's that version, but then there's Mm -hmm. like describing my mind. How do my experiences resonate with these things? And you only get to live one life. Right. So, and the other question I wanted to ask Myron earlier and the thing I was going to follow up with, uh, on is out of my own experience and like coming back to, if you ask me, I would have a lot of things I would state at 51%, you know, like, but I don't really feel like imposing that on other people, but I do really feel like giving a hard time to pictures of Christianity. I wouldn't think are worth worshiping. Right. Like, so there's that, but the other side is, the reason these things are compelling to me are because of like very specific experiences in communities of practice. And I think the Christianity's obsession with correct beliefs, and I'm saying this as someone who's about to get to 1200 episodes of their podcast, which is about <laughs> believing things. Okay. It's just mostly about beliefs and not okay. practices. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now I would say that if you looked at the volume of the diversity over 1200 episodes. I just want pretty versions of all these different expressions, but I honestly think mine are better than everybody's. But nonetheless, that desire that your faith is primarily asserting some linguistic collective is just so dumb. Like I don't even know. Here's a, okay. There are two things. One, I've been a member at, I mean, a minister at a like, Rural North Carolina Baptist Church, and then a lot of things in between, and a UCC church in Los Angeles. I don't think many of those people agreed with me, even though I was their minister. Hmm. You know why? Because when they came to Christian ed things, I realized they were all heretics, and they needed me to tell them what it was we believed, and then I felt uncomfortable doing that. Right. So thinking of my own experience where I came back into the faith in this aesthetic way as a community of practice and all that kind of stuff. 
I really shifted as a minister from doing more education leading things to practice things. And I started calling them experiments in truth where you would take different sayings of Jesus and then go like, how can we turn it to an experiment where you live as if this is true for a month? And when you do those, you realize this is like a completely not, it's not a statement about the truth of other religions or of non-practitioners. I'm just saying like, for example, do not judge. If you do, if you practice that for a month and you say, Oh, there's like 12 of us. And I did this with an adult confirmation class. And most of these people weren't religious before. They're in Los Angeles, and they're like, I met you at protest or activism work or whatever, right? Like, I guess I'm going to be religious now. I'll see this. Well, you spend a month, and you're like, Jesus says don't judge. What would it be like? And if you judge someone, you text the group, the name. And then what happens? Everyone else gets it. If I text, like, I judge Sarah because she, like, isn't hanging out with me as much anymore because she has like a newborn in the COVID. And I'm like, I just want to hang out with Sarah and I feel like bad. I'm judging her, but like I am. And then like Sarah and Dan get the text and they, they get it and they know what they're going to do. They're going to pray. And they see it. Sarah trip judging Sarah. Oh, this is bad news. And they say, God, you made and know and love Sarah completely. Give trip eyes to see her as you see her and the courage to treat her as you desire her to be treated. Right. And you do that. And then you, Throughout the week, you get five or six texts a day, different people texting you. Week three, after processing it, someone finally texts themselves. And so all of a sudden, you're like, oh, shit, Trip just texts Trip. And you're like, God, you made and know and love Trip completely. Give Trip the eyes to see him as you see him and the courage to love him as you desire him to be loved. Well, you do that whole thing. You just put 12 adults in a room. At what point would they ever tell you? any other group of humans, right? Those type of things. No. Nah. Then you find out like the underneath all of our judgment of other people is that we judge ourselves, that we've lashed on to things other people have said about ourselves, that we're minimizing our, our value and place in the world. And we cling to them as if they're true. And as Christians, you postulate this theopoetic possibility that the, the source of existence is Abba saying, I made you know you and love you completely. Like, I don't know if it's true, but it should be. And you only live once. So do you want to sit on the sidelines and not like locate yourself in some place that embodies this? Life? Like, do I want to sit there and come up with a billion reasons? Like, this is the best reason not to go with Wesley Wildman, you know, like uh, it, not that anyone here knows this. I was like literally looking at Sarah's face, but like, this is like, it is not like a, a facticity winning. It's a form of life like thing. Like it's more beautiful and then if you're asking me, and this is this is setting up for the question, you all three have new children. Which would you rather give them? Like a generous vision of a world known and loved and valued by an eternal parent that cares for them and even their enemy that may or may not be true, or one where they think their own rationality and logic and access to the world gets to parse truth systems. That's the thing about deconstructing is it actually gives you permission to generously embrace the world with the gift of a wisdom tradition without clenching it with a fist. And if you're just asking what I get to do with this one life, I would rather do one where father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Like it. And, and I don't think that has to be compelling for someone, but if you're born into this story, if it is attracted to you and then you're deconstructing, what if that process of deconstructing is a place 
where there's collectives that think enemy love matters. That's awesome. That's great. I'm with you, bro. Preach I, it. I started preaching again. Yeah, I love it when I'm, you preach. I'll Me mute too. myself now. No, I love it. When, oh. I love it when you preach. Well, we need to. We got to wrap up time wise. I have another interview in 15 minutes, and we're over two hours. So we've 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 run we've run the we've run the race well, guys. Thank you so much for joining. I'm glad we let Trip have the last word there. Yeah, uh, in a in a pastoral sense, that seems like a good way to wrap up. Yeah. Again, it's so your deconstructing dot com. Y o u r e deconstructing dot com. <laughs> no apostrophe because there are you no. You can't do that in your house. <laughs> and you. it'll be in the show notes. I'm sure. Of course, right? it will be. Give a show theme notes. song for your <laughs> like URL. No, no, I'm not going like, to write so one. Deconstructing. So deconstructing.com. It's all about It's all about the how you do the .com. It's like .com. Like that's if you got that figured out, then you could use that. That's you, know, you can repeat it. Look, that's you're money. undefeated. Every presidential election that used one of your songs has won. That's true. In fact, it's in fact the company the main company that I write for we had a Biden ad. That's what Trip is. I was going to say. I feel like I missed this part of the yeah. story. One of my no, I think I sent it in the chat. One of our one of our tracks that my buddy Hannon and I wrote, that's in my own music library for my day job, got used for a Biden web ad. And actually, in 2016, they asked the same company, this company Marmoset Music that I write for in Portland, if they could use our stuff for for Hillary. They went and asked everybody and kind of pre cleared all their composers at the time. And I was like, hell yeah. But they didn't use one, so I could maybe that would have been the difference. Yeah, you're like you're like her going in, to Wisconsin. It would have played in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and it would have made oh, given us that eighty thousand votes we needed. Okay, well at least it worked this time. Okay, so you're deconstructing dot com, Sari, Sarah, Trip, and Myron who left earlier. Thank you guys so much for joining, and it sounds like we've got some other episodes upcoming with you all so people will get a chance to hear you again soon. Amen. I try not to toot my own composer horn, but I like this track. This track is called Count on You and uh, it's one of the things that I write for my day job. Uh, Anyway, Thank you to Josh Gilbert, my editor and producer, for editing this conversation. And, uh, of course, please check out SoYou'reDeconstructing.com. There's a link in the show notes, of course. And thank you to Sari, Sarah, Tripp, and Myron for their time. And we'll see you guys next week with a new episode. Dr. Kerr, we didn't expect to get a gift from her or 
our cousin, I forget his name. He got us something nice, better reciprocate. For last minute deals on gifts for people you forgot, get past the free shipping at Amazon.